0: Oh, this evening I'd like to talk about Buddhism and death and about why we contemplate death as we're doing here in Maranasati. And in some ways it's very simple why we contemplate it because it's true. And it's You know, the way things are is that everything that's born dies. And so we contemplate that to come into harmony with the way things are. Because there's a freedom when we come into harmony with what's true. And we're interested in the experiential reality not the conceptual idea that we're going to die. You you all know that conceptually, or that things are impermanent. But to keep coming into harmony with this experiential truth that this, and I'm pointing at myself, but of course I'm pointing to each of us, this is impermanent, and this is going to die. And there is something about coming into alignment or harmony with what's true that is very freeing for the heart and mind. Kalu Rinpoche, great Tibetan teacher, he wasn't talking about death, but he said it this way when he talked about our misunderstanding, and then understanding what's true. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. And he didn't mean that as a criticism. He just meant there's a very surface level to, of reality. And we... Um. And we take that to be the whole truth. What it's just the surface level. And sometimes called an illusion, because it's not the depth of reality. So we live in illusion and the appearance of things, the surface of things. He says, there is a reality. There is a reality. You are that reality you are that reality. And I'm repeating it because I think it's so important and so hard for us to get that we are reality. We are the truth. We are the Dharma. We are the magic and mystery of reality manifesting as conscious human beings. So he says, there is we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. And, you know, I read that, and I think, oh, I should just stop here. That's the whole talk. Because <laughs> it's so beautiful, and it's so profound what he's saying. Because he's saying, he's pointing at the paradoxical truth of reality that is sitting here, that is us, that we are nothing. We're just a blip in the universe. I mean, like, you know, really, like, you know, in the whole universe? (laughs) I mean, if I start looking around really to the whole universe, you know how small Eugene is? I mean, I'm already small, but I mean, it's, it's really... It's really small in the whole, when you look at the sun, you know, or even the moon, or, or the planets, or the galaxies, or the other universes, I mean, reality is wild. And it's not just a nice metaphorical thing to say. It's actually true if we look at reality. And he and he just says it so beautifully. He says, when you discover this, you will see that you are nothing and being nothing, you are everything. And so he's pointing at two levels of reality. The dual level that says, you know, we're just a blip in the screen. And then the, the non-dual level that says, oh, we are everything. And people are having some taste of that. I can't remember if it was in the group or in my small meeting groups or in the bigger group but you know somebody talking about becoming one with everything the light and the sun and the earth and and that happens when we start to relax our usual idea of what is true and start discovering more of what's right here what's right here what's listening to me and what is speaking from me. And the key in Buddhism, one of the keys that I, as I understand it, is about letting go. And death is the great teacher of letting go, right? There's no other, there's nothing else to do. And I've been with a lot of people who've died as a hospice worker, And I've watched people struggle, 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 and hold on, hold on, hold on. And I've also watched people just relax and let go. And the paradox is even the people who struggle, 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 at some point, they let go. Because there's nothing else to do. It's just the truth of the way things are. And so I... Couldn't help but read again the Dikini Speaks because even though Gulu has dakinis in his world, I have some in mine. And it's the same poem, but it's so beautiful that I thought, let's say it again. And this is, it's from Jennifer Wellwood who writes, my friends, let's grow up. And that also is a great line in the poem. It's like, oh, let's grow up. let's Let's mature. Let's and we're already mature but buddhism offers another level of maturity when i think of the buddha and awakening really what i think oh that's a mature human being that is what uh, that's the potential for us as human beings to mature and and again i'm not saying we're not mature at a certain level we are you know if you got here you 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 did what you needed to do to get here you took care of business or said goodbye to your friends or your family or flew on a plane or drove. That's what mature people do. You're already mature. But there's another level of maturity that the Buddha exemplified in his waking up to the depth of what it is to be a human being, to be an a even more mature human being. And so she's saying it too, she's echoing, and she said, let's grow up, right? Let's stop pretending we don't know the, the deal here. Or if we truly had noticed, let's wake up and, and notice. Let's look, 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 she says, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's not a mistake, and it's not a bad thing, even though we may grieve our losses. It's just the way things are. And she says, everything that will be lost will be lost. It's so simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. And again, that's another way to think about the Buddha. He became a very ripe human being. And what was beautiful is he said, oh, all humans can ripen in this way, can develop in this way, can mature in this way, can wake up in this way. And then she goes on to say, but please, let's not be shocked by our losses. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it ruth, with ruthless impeccability. And you know, that's one of the great spiritual qualities that we can develop as we practice here this week, is a certain kind of impeccability. And you can try it for one day, just one, a half a day, don't even do it a whole day, a half a day. Be totally impeccable in your practice. When you wake up, start being aware of what's happening. And then when you start to move to get out of bed, get aware, be aware of movement. And then when you, you know, go to eat your breakfast or come into the sitting, do the sitting. And when you get up to leave the sitting, don't walk super slow, but be aware of moving. And then when you go down the hill to get the food, be aware of moving down the hill. And be impeccable for just a half a day and see what happens. Because it could be fun. <laughs> could be. And, and of course, to be impeccable means we're not judging ourselves for our lack of impeccability. Real impeccability means no self criticism ever and and i mean that and self criticism doesn't mean we don't discern discern when we do things wrong wrong because if you're still a human being you will make mistakes and we want to be aware of when we make a mistake so we can apologize or correct what needs to be corrected but we don't want to judge ourselves berate ourselves attack ourselves in any way, because that's just not skillful practice. That's not being impeccable. So she said, "Impermanence keeps keeps her only promise with a ruthless impeccability." To a child, she seems cru- cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly pe- penetrating, luminous with truth. And you you hear the you hear the the imagery of the flowers blooming out of the, the pond. You hear the the the. Um, uh, let's see, who do we have here? We've got Buddha and we've got Prajna Paramita. Is that who? Yeah, and you know she's holding this this uh, flower of wisdom in her hands, and that's what Jennifer is pointing at, right? This luminous with truth. I've, I have to tell you this on the side, it just came to me, but I've got a new baseball hat, I should have brought it, and it says luminous, is that right? No, it says something, <laughs> luminous, <laughs> it's close, it's close, wait, wait, it's close, <laughs> give me, it's, it starts with an L, and it's, it's a new car, actually, does anybody know the car, it's, Lucid. It says Lucid, so it's close enough to luminosity for me, but it says Lucid, and we we ran into this. We were visiting in New York, and we walked by this car dealership, and I'd never seen this car before. And I'm I'm from Detroit. I like cars, And, and we walked in, and they said, oh yeah, it's a new electric car, and I said, oh, like a Tesla, and they were like, no, Tesla is like, Downgrade totally. This is a real electric car, <laughs> and, and and but I, and I couldn't afford the car, but I got the hat, <laughs> and I like because because it's great when we're lucid and there's a lucidity and a luminosity. It's all the same root. It's about light, and it's about waking up the light that's right here, that's in each of us, and so jennifer says her compassion exquisitely precise brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth she strips away the unreal to show us the real this is the true ride let's give ourselves to it let's stop making de- deals for safe passage there isn't one anyway and the cost is too high this is really true, what Jennifer's saying. There isn't there isn't a safe passage. There's safe enough, right? And that's good. But really, there's no real safety if you're a human, because anything could happen at any time. Like, this could be our last breath, is really a true practice, because it could be. And I'm not see- encouraging or suggesting anybody die here. But people have died on retreats that I've been teaching. It happens because it's normal. Because you have to die somewhere. And actually I think this is not a bad place. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. I mean you know, it's, there's a there's a lot of beautiful heartfulness in this space and and I think that's a good place if you're gonna die. So she says, let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true adult human gives everything for what, it can, what cannot be lost. Gives everything for what cannot be lost. And Gulu named all these understandings of, of awakening, one of which was called the deathless. Right? Right? And when a true human being gives everything for what cannot be lost, let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So I'd like to say a little more about Buddhism and death by telling you a story from the suttas. And it's the story of Anathapindaka and a Pindaka was a householder a bhikkhu a householder practitioner very devoted to the buddha and he was a person of means you know i maybe we would say he was upper class at that era but he was a he was a merchant businessman he had some some money and he became devoted to the buddha and he and at some point the buddha said something about um Oh, or Anath, the Buddha wanted uh, some land for the first monastery, and and the Buddha and Anathapindika asked him where, and he told him this place that he liked in Jetta's Grove, and so he went to Anathapindika went to <laughs> Prince Jetta to say, "Can I buy this land?" and and uh, and Jetta was a little, he was more upper class than Anathapindika, and he was a little. Privileged is a nice way to say it about it. And so he said, oh, you want to buy my land? Can you afford to pay it? He said, well, I'll pay whatever you want. And he said, well, just cover it with gold. Cover the amount of land you want with gold. And Anathapindaka did. And that's how the Buddha got his first monastery. So so I like that Anathapindika trumped Prince Jetta. <laughs> he had enough gold to buy him out, and then later in his life, Anatta Pindaka, as some of us hear, was aging, and ill, and close to death, and so he told someone. He asked someone to go to the Buddha and tell the Buddha that he was ill, and uh, and you know, and if he could send somebody for to help. He would appreciate it, and I'm—I'm I'm sure I'm not—I'm shortcutting all of that, but it's part of the story. And so the Buddha sends uh, the venerable uh, 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 Sariputra, Sariputta in the Pali, Sariputra in the Pali. And so uh, Sariputra, having put on his robes and taking his bowl and outer robe, went to the home of Anathapindika the householder, with venerable Ananda as his attendant. And arriving, they sat down at the seat and, and said to Anattapindaka, the householder, I trust you are getting better, householder. I trust you are comfortable. I trust that your pains are lessening and not increasing. I trust there are signs of their lessening and not of their increasing. And Anattapindaka is very direct and honest with him. And he said... I am not getting better, venerable. I am not comfortable. My severe pains are increasing, not lessening. So he's telling him the truth of what's happening here right now experientially. He says, my severe pains are increasing, not lessening. There there are signs of their increasing, not less. Uh, and not of lessening. Extreme forces slice through my head, just as if a strong man were slicing my head open with a sharp sword. Right? So he's describing the pain in the parlance of his time. And he's saying it very directly. And then he says, Extreme pains have arisen in my head, just as if a strong man were tightening a turban on my head with tough leather straps. Extreme forces carve up my stomach cavity, just as if an expert butcher or their apprentice were to carve up the stomach cavity of an ox with a sharp butcher's knife. And you can just start to feel a taste of what he's pointing at by the acuity of his language. And then he continues, there is an extreme burning in my body just as if two strong men seizing a weaker man with their arms were to roast and broil him over a pit of hot embers. I am not getting better, Venerable. I am not comfortable. So that's, You know, may it happen to none of us that way with that kind of pain, because pain is really horrible for the body. And if we've even had a little serious pain, we know how difficult pain is. And so Sariputta, whose compassion arises, says this. He says, then householder, Then, householder, train yourself thus. Train yourself thus. I won't cling to the eye. My consciousness will not be dependent on the eye. That's how you should train yourself. And then he goes on. I will not cling to the ear, to the nose, to the tongue, to the body. My consciousness will not be dependent on my body. I will not cling to the mind. My consciousness will not be dependent on the mind. That's how to train oneself. And then he goes on to train yourself. I won't cling to forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations. My consciousness will not be dependent on sensations. I will not cling to ideas. My consciousness will not be dependent on ideas. And then he continues this very powerful teaching. Then householder, train yourself in this way. I will not cling. And he goes through the elements, the different elements that I mentioned earlier. The earth element, the water element, the fire element, the wind element, the space element. My consciousness will not be dependent on the elements. And uh, I won't cling to to the consciousness element. He's adding another one. And my consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. That's how you should train yourself. You should train yourself in this way. I won't cling to form, feeling, perception, thought. Con- thought, Form, feeling, perception, thought. My consciousness will not be dependent on thought. I won't cling to consciousness. My consciousness will not be dependent on consciousness. This is how to train yourself. And then he continues... And he says, household, you train yourself. And now he's talking about very deep uh, um, states of samadhi. And he names them. He says, I won't cling to the dimension of the infinitude of space, and I won't cling to the dimension of the infinitude of consciousness, and I won't cling to the dimension of nothingness, and I won't, cl- and my consciousness will not be dependent on the dimension of nothingness, and I won't cling to the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, and these, in very very deep meditation in samadhi. You can experience what he's pointing at of space, or of um, uh, infinite consciousness, or nothingness, or even what he's talking about—neither perception nor non-perception—and I have had a little taste of that. And it's like, it's like, it's like not even knowing—you're not in any world you're in between all worlds, neither perception nor non-perception. And that's how you should train yourself. And then he goes on, he says, I won't cling to this world, and I, and my consciousness will not be dependent on this world. I will not cling to the world beyond, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the world beyond. And then he he keeps going. He's summarizing it. He says, I won't cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, examined by the mind. My consciousness will not be dependent on that. And so I hope you can feel the complete letting go he's pointing at, of not clinging to any experience whatsoever not clinging to any experience whatsoever is how I understand it. And when this was said, Anatta Pindaka, the householder, wept. And this is really, I could weep thinking about him because he's dying. And he gets his teaching and he weeps. And he sheds tears. And Ananda says to him, are you sinking, householder? Are you foundering? Are you dying? He says to him. And, and Anathapindaka says, no, venerable, I am not sinking, nor am I foundering. It's just that for a long time I have attended to the teacher, the Buddha, and to the bhikkhus who inspire my heart, but never before have I heard a talk on the dharma like this. And So he's moved by the depth of dharma he's being given, and that we're being given, because this is in that book over there, in the, in the Majjima Nikaya. And and um and so he's he said, I've never heard a talk on the Dhamma like this before. And Ananda says, this sort of talk on the Dhamma householder is not given to householders clad in white. This sort of talk on the Dhamma is given to those who have gone forth, to the monks and nuns, to the monastics. And And Anatta Pindaka speaking for us, speaking for each of us, he says, in that case, Venerable Sariputta, please let this sort of talk on the Dharma be given to householders clad in white. There are clans people with little dust in their eyes who are wasting away through the not hearing of this Dharma. There will be those who understand it. And this is how these teachings come to us now, because Sariputta, I, I mean, excuse me, Anath, Anathapindika, on his deathbed, asks for us, and it points to the the beauty and the depth and the profundity of what's called Sangha. That we're all here together. That Anathapindika is here with us because we're hearing these teachings now also. And so the 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 breadth of Dhamma, of Sangha, is beyond generational. It's multi-generational, we'd probably say these days. And so Sariputta and Ananda left, and then not long after, Pindaka the householder, died. And So it's beautiful, because he gets the teachings before he dies, and he reappeared in what's called the Tusita heaven. And there, Anattapindaka, the Deva's son, Deva's godlike, Deva's son, in the far extreme of the night, his... In in the far extreme of the night, his extreme radiance exciting up the entirety of Jetta's gro- grove, which is where the Buddha was, so his radiance is now lighting up the entirety of Jetta's grove, went to the Blessed One and on arrival, bowed in front of him and received his blessing. And of course, this is even after he died. And so it's a beautiful story and teaching of letting go of, in our language, relaxing and seeing there's nothing to hold on to. That we can love whatever we love and care about whatever we care about. We just don't have to hold on to it. We can start to let go And this letting go is talked about in many different ways in Buddhism. And I thought I would talk a little about one way. It's not always talked about, but Pam talked about rising and passing. And in the uh, Vasudhi Maga, I believe, um, translated by uh, Nanataloka, he talks about, he said, in addition to death in the conventional sense... Buddhism, Marana, arising and passing away of all mental and physical phenomena and, moment, and the momentariness of existence is described in the Vasudhi Maga in this way. In the highest sense, beings only have a short instant to live. As a wagon wheel, when rolling as well as when standing still at any time it rests at a single point of its rim on the ground, just so the life of human beings endures only for the length of a single moment of consciousness. When that is extinguished, there so also is the being extinguished. For it is said, the being of the last moment of consciousness lived, now lives no longer, and will not live again later. The being of the future moment of consciousness has not lived yet, nor also does not eat, live yet, has not lived yet, nor also does not live yet live and will and will only live later. The being of the present moment of consciousness did not live previously, lives just now, but will not live anymore. And it's pointing to this momentariness of existence. And we string it together, And it creates time and space. But actually, all there is, is this moment. There's no other moment but this moment. Everything else is a memory, or a plan, or an idea, or a fantasy, or a wish. And those aren't bad, none of those are bad, but there's only this moment of reality. And it's wild when we start to come into harmony with that, even a little bit. People love actually to be in the lived moment. And then we talk about, wasn't that great? Remember when we were there? We are really there. I was really there when I was doing whatever, skiing or swimming in the bay or... Or eating that, you know, that chocolate ice cream. Oh, that was so... I, 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 I didn't even think of anything else. Because it was dark chocolate. It was so good. And, you know, and, and, but it's just... When, we're, when we become one with the immediacy of reality, there's something good there. And you don't have to believe me. Just look at your direct experience. And so that was from uh, Taloka, but Bhante Gunaratna takes it further. He says, there is yet another law, the understanding of which helps in the understanding of death. It is the law of becoming. So impermanence is the law of change. He's talking about the law of becoming, or bhava. Bawa, probably, which is a corollary to the law of change, or Nietzsche. The law of becoming, like the law of change, is constantly at work and applies to everything. While the law of change states that nothing is permanent but ever-changing, the law of becoming states that everything is always in the process of changing into something else. It's changing into this and now this, and now this, right? Everything is in a process of changing into something else. Not only is everything changing into something else, but the nature of that change is a process of becoming something else, however short or long the process may be. Briefly put, the law of becoming is this. Nothing is, but is becoming. Becoming. Nothing is, but is becoming. A ceaseless becoming is the feature of all things. So it's a beautiful balance to the law of change because everything's going to change, everything's going to disappear, and something else is born. Boom. This ends, boom. We call it death and birth and birth, and death, and it's right here, it's momentary. So the last piece, I would, let's see, I have a lot in this talk. Let's see what I'm going to get to. I I thought it'd be good for me to say a little bit personally about death. And I mentioned that I was a Zen Hospice volunteer for many years and taught there and and um, had my own had my own experience of birth and death. I have a total good fortune to be at the birth of my daughter, and how amazing it is to see life come out of nowhere. You know what I mean, I could see physically where life came from but i mean where does consciousness come from right and then it just shows up in this new person <laughs> my mother kept saying to me before you know while we were my wife and i were pregnant saying saying to me uh, do you want me to come up when the baby's born and I'm like, no, you don't have to come up, you know. We're we're good. We we've taken a baby class. And <laughs> and, and she's and she said it a few times. I kept saying no, no, you know, and then the next time she said, Oh, you do you want me to come up? I'd say no. And I remember and my daughter was born, and my daughter was squatted out. My my her mother, uh squatted her out, which was pretty amazing, because you always think of something beautiful or nice, and it it wasn't ugly, but it was not how I think of people being born, and and uh, and it was just amazing, I remember seeing her head, I can see it now, her head starting to come out and then the rest of her body, and it's like and it's like, whoa, this is a person here (laughs) And I remember and then and we were out, we were in we were in an ABC, an alternative birth center, so we had a doula and we were doing it with a, a you know, a midwife who was helping us, but we but it was in a hospital in case there were any problems. So there were medical Western medicine was available. And um and uh and you know, and everything was good and doctors came in later just to make sure everybody was healthy. And we were all good, and I remember I had to walk home afterwards and uh and two things happened walking home after the birth of my daughter one is um, I started to see everybody as babies, right, and it was like i you could just see it. It was like I could see it now, like do you remember? can you all remember when you were like this big? <laughs> It it was wild to be out of the womb. I can tell you, you may not remember that, but the womb was usually pretty comfortable. (laughs) You know, you're getting everything you need right there. And so that was just, that was kind of amazing to see everybody as babies. You could just see the time didn't matter, however young or old they were. You could see their birth. I could see their birth. And then by the time I got home, uh, I realized that my daughter was going to come home in a day. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I called my mom and said, you know, I think you should come up. <laughs> and 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 it was good. And she came up, she waited a day or two and then came up. And so we, we got our daughter home and then you know it, it was good to have my grandma around and and uh, help us learn how to take care of a baby and and so the power of birth was so powerful but the power of death is also powerful and i was it, i went to be with my mother when she was dying and she was in los angeles then and uh, and they were in a little home that they had there, and I wasn't staying with them because it was too small, but I was staying near them. And uh, and I remember, um, um, you know, she, she was clearly dying, and she was mostly unconscious, but I knew enough from hospice work, you know, to talk to her. And, you know, it's really it just loving people in that, at that state of life is really a good thing. And so you just love them. And, uh, and, uh, and then I, I went home that night, she was still alive. And I, uh, I went to sleep and I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt this little disturbed and I went and got in the shower and, uh, and I thought, Oh, it's okay. You can die without me, mom. And then when I got back in bed about five in the morning and, uh, and I got a call that my mom had died. And so that kind of communication happened right at the end of her life that where some, and I'm not super psychic or anything, but somehow there was something, me knowing it was time for her to go. And it was okay for her to go without me, even though I would have liked to have been there when she died. She didn't need me to be there when she died. And and that's true. Some people, they like having other people there. Some people, they want to die alone for whatever reasons. And it's important to respect that if you're with people who are dying. And then... uh, I went over there and my brothers who were also in town came and all three of us were there and we, you know, and there was a little bit, well, what do you do? Uh, you wash the body is what you do traditionally. And so we washed her body and it was very uh, moving. You know, I, I hadn't seen my mother naked since I was, you know, three years old or something. And, uh, just to see her body and, and, uh, and. You know, it's very poignant and it's also so normal. It's like, oh yeah, this is what happens. Well, body dies, it's dead. And uh and so I'm looking at her body and I'm I'm having a little reverie about her breasts. I'm like, Oh, these are the breasts I suckled on, you know, as a baby. And I said something to my older brother. He said, No, you you didn't do that. And I said, What? He said, "No, they were telling people not to breastfeed at that point, and so she didn't breastfeed. You didn't get breastfed, and I like, and and yeah, it was. It was pretty. It was a little ironic. It's like here I am having this reverie about <laughs> these breasts that I I never suckled on, <laughs> and, you know. And but it's life. It's humans, right? And so and so I'm partly I'm saying that because it's it's so normal." that we don't know what we're doing. And we don't know (laughs) what happened, even. I didn't know, you know. I'm glad my older brother knew. And I was also, I wasn't at my father's death, but I was in communication with him. And he wanted to die. He lived till 92 and he'd had it. He was like, "Um," you know, basically he was, called me up and said, can you get me out of here? And I was very Buddhist, and I was like, you know, I I can't do that, Dad. That's not something I would do. I don't know if I would have the same answer today, to be honest. Because uh, if somebody wants to die and they make that choice, I, especially at 92, personally I don't have a problem with it. But I was a little younger and a little more fundamentalist buddhist about you know you don't kill anything and i basically don't kill anything but if he wanted to die it might have been okay for me to tell him how he could do that uh, but he he didn't i didn't and but he ended up dying and and i was with him basically the next day and uh and um and i was with his body and i was really um, you know, grieving and sad, but also a little happy for him, because I knew he was ready to go, which happens in in life uh, but it, what was illuminating was it was clear that he wasn't his body anymore, and I was still holding him as an old man because he'd been old for quite a while, and I was still pretty young. And he seemed, you know, he seemed old to me. And I realized, oh, he wasn't an old man anymore. And I, I realized more, I realized my ideas about people are have a relative truth, but not an ultimate truth, right? Because cause then I was remembering him, not when he was 90, but when he was 80 or 70 or 60 or 50 or 40. And and he was a different person all the years I knew him. I mean, he was still the same dad, but he wasn't the same dad all the time. He changed. And he even, now he wasn't an old man anymore. And it was very liberating for me not to hold him as an old man anymore, not to be attached to him being an old man. And so I have tried to say, and I thought Gulu also was very good at being somewhat humorous around death and having some positivity around it because it's not... It's not just a bad thing. It's tragic and grief felt many times, and it's also normal. And so I thought I would read to you from a couple people, from uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote a lot about death, really mainstreamed it in America. She said, I've told my children that when I die to release balloons in the sky to celebrate that I graduated, for me, death is a graduation. And so she was someone who studied death. Now she was getting her MA when she died. Well, how I hear it. And then from uh, um, uh, Tecumseh, who was a Shawnee chief, a Native American uh, chief warrior who promoted resistance to the expansion of the U.S. Uh, uh, military into Native American lands. And he was a very powerful leader and speaker. And he traveled widely, forming a Native American confederacy and promoting intertribal unity in order to deal with the oppression that was coming towards him and his people. And he said, when your time comes to die... When your time comes to die, be not like those whose hearts are filled with fear of death so that when their time comes, they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. Sing your death song. Sing your death song and die like a hero going home. And it's beautiful, beautiful, heartfelt understanding of something that's really in alignment with, in my opinion, with Buddhism, which is we come from the earth and we go back to the earth. Or we come from, we could say it in any tradition, we come from God and we go back to God. Or we we come from uh, who knows where and we go back to who knows where. It's all so magical and wild and normal that different traditions speak about it in different ways. Mm. A couple last things to say. I'm going to quote a couple of teachers who have influenced me very much about, I I wrote how to awaken people, deal with death. And this is, Think Michael Chadwick with Suzuki Roshi. I forget his name. Yeah, Michael David Chadwick. Thank you. He's, he writes about going up to visit Suzuki Roshi when he was dying. Suzuki Roshi, and he went up to Suzuki Roshi's room not long before his death. He was Suzuki Roshi was in bed, extremely weak. His skin discolored. He bowed, and I did the same. And then he looked right at me and said, not with a loud voice, but very firmly, don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. And that was his last words to David Chadwick. And another Zen teacher who who Pam mentioned, I just thought I'd throw this in too, of Katagiri Roshi. He talked about um, being a, he came out to a bunch of students and was talking to him and said, I see you are watching me closely. You want to see how a Zen master dies, and I'll show you. And he kicked his arms and flailed his, he kicked his arms and flailed his arms with alarm, crying out, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's a good said teacher, because <laughs> it breaks the trance that it's supposed to be the right way. And then the last one, which is in our lineage, which is Ajahn Chah, who said, and he, and it's a quote of he went to visit a householder who was dying. And what he said, he said, now determine in your mind to listen with respect to the Dhamma. During the time I am speaking, be as attentive to my words as if the Buddha himself was sitting in front of you. Today, I have brought nothing material of any substance to offer you, only Dhamma. Listen well. Understand that the Buddha himself understand that the Buddha himself, even with his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body and its heavy burden. This very lump of flesh that lies lies here in decline is called Sakadharma, the truth. The truth of the body is Sakadharma, and it is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha, The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and come to terms with its nature. The Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, a human or animal, no being in this world can maintain itself in any one state for long. Everything experiences change and estrangement. This, this is a fact of life we can do nothing to remedy. But the Buddha said that what we can do is contemplate the body, heart, and mind so to see their impersonality, see that neither of them is me or mine. This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position, even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples, They differ from us in only one respect, and that was in their acceptance of the way things are. They saw it could be no other way. And so there was a certain objectivity that comes with maturity. Oh, this is just the way things are. And it allows us to relax and let things come and let things go. So I'll stop there. Let's sit for a moment. And you can sit relaxed in any way you want. Just feel your body. Feel the liveness that's here. In Buddhism, it said all conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and pass away. To come into harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll have a period of movement meditation and then the last sitting. And please feel free to leave as you wish. It takes us a little while to deconstruct here. Thank you.